Amen. Good morning. We are not going back to mandatory masks or anything like that. I was exposed this week to a dear friend on vacation who I've been friends with since I was in middle school. And he came down with COVID on Wednesday and we were together Tuesday night, but we were mostly outside and I've been vaccinated and had the virus both. So this is only for your protection, but for the, for the purpose of preaching, I'm going to take this off because I think it's much easier to communicate if you can see my mouth. So, and I'm a big fan of air. Did you know that? That's also the other reason. So, A couple of things I want to draw your attention to. If you've got your bulletin here, a few housekeeping things. You know about the picnic today. Uh, please turn in your deacon nomination forms. We need those in by the 8th to begin prepare for the new year. In addition to that, uh, if you want a T-shirt for the church, we're going to be working with uh, Coverbridge Days. I'd like everybody to have a T-shirt for that. Sign up is out there at the Welcome Center booth. And thank you for that. need that as well. And... Um, Grief share is coming up. If you've lost somebody, we're going to start that this fall on Tuesdays, 1 to 3. Uh, opportunity for you to come and be a part of that. We've had folks at work and been able to work that out with their uh, bosses to do cover that. Somebody else helped them so they can get away for that. Uh, great, great ministry for helping and bringing healing. All right, that brings us to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is... We're picking up here where I left off. Jerry, I know, did a phenomenal job last week. It was probably a lot better sermon than what I got. I actually went to church in the Dollywood Park. Did you know they have church in Dollywood every Sunday? They do. Uh, and uh, had some weird definitions and things, a weird kind of message that was in there. But uh, I know you got a better message than what I got. But uh, we're working through the Gospel of Luke. This is your first time or first time in a long time. We try to look at the Word closely and and uh, go book by book, verse by verse, and we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today we are going to uh, have a look here at a passage that, to be quite honest, this may be one of the most famous sections of the New Testament, particularly the Gospel writers. Uh, this is a section of Scripture that even though we live in a society where there probably are just about as many Bibles as there are people, most people are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So then the question is, what do we make of this? What is this about? What is the context of this parable? What is it really about? And it's really important that we understand this because some have tried to just boil the Christian faith down to a good Samaritan service lifestyle. And that's really what the faith is about. I don't think this is what Jesus is teaching. And we're going to look at this closely and make sure we understand this as this unfolds. So without ado, let's look at this together. Uh, Luke chapter 10 Verses 25 through 42. Hear the word of God, church. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem. By the way, uh, just a little background here. Jerusalem sits at close to 2,400 feet or feet above sea level. So it's close to the same 
elevation as Roan Mountain. Isn't that kind of crazy? So, you know, if you, next time you, you know, you're always going up to Roan Mountain, aren't you? If you're down here at a lower elevation, you're traveling up. Even if you're north of Roan Mountain, you're still going up to Roan Mountain. So every time in the scriptures they're talking about Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem and, and down from Jerusalem. To Jericho, which Jericho is below sea level. So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers. This would have been a treacherous path. It would have been, you can imagine the elevation to go from 2,400 feet above sea level all the way down to below sea level. Lots of places for robbers to hide. The, the Greek verb here actually means to encompass around. So it, was like, it wasn't like one robber showed up and beat him up. It was like a group of robbers popped out from all around him. He had no escape, nowhere to go other than they could take what they want to and they could beat him as much as they wanted to do. He just had to take the medicine that was coming. He fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, whenever he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. (laughs) So strike two. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when, he, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. By the way, if you're a highlighter, you might want to highlight sat at the Lord's feet. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And listen to his teaching. But Martha was distracted when much serving, with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Amen. May God add blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on our hearts. There is a group I have begun to notice on social media who call themselves ex-evangels. Has anybody ever seen this before? They're on TikTok and various other things. Nobody's seen it, just me. I guess that means that I spend way too much time on TikTok and I need to cut back. Uh, yeah. One of the things that is often said by this group is that there is no need for Christians to seek conversions and to press in on people for conviction and to have them confess and believe in Christ. This is a fundamentalistic movement from the 1900s, and this is unfamiliar to the church's history before that. Well, this passage today would beg to differ, Right? Let's think about this for just a minute. What is the first question? Rewinding the tape back to the very first verse I read here. 
What is the first question that this lawyer, who, by the way, he's not a lawyer in the sense of like how you think of lawyers now, someone going to practice law in a court of law. They may have done that some, but the primarily what they were studying is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They want to be intimately familiar with the law. And so they would go, and the most important thing to somebody who is a lawyer is to study the law and to have conversations about the law and to figure out how to have more conversations about the law. And here, clearly, in this passage, this lawyer, this professor, who was a teacher of other rabbis and other lawyers, he is, he's setting a trap for Jesus here, right? He doesn't, they don't like it necessarily when Jesus detracts from the crowd and don't see them as the same authority as they see Jesus here. And he sort of sets him up here. But what's interesting to me is the first question. Let's read it together. Teacher, what shall I do to what? Inherit eternal life. All right, put your thumb right there in Luke 10. Flip over to Luke 18 for just a minute. Luke 18, we're going to see a similar interaction between Jesus and a rich young ruler. Now, I'm not going to, that's not today's text. I'm not going to unpack that. But here is the question the rich young ruler asked Jesus. Do you remember, church? What does he say? Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell the rich young ruler he needs to do? Sell everything you got, give it all to the poor. You'll have eternal life. What does that mean? Is the gospel selling everything you got, giving it to the poor, and living a life of poverty and making poverty pious? No, that's not necessary. What Jesus was doing there, he looked in this rich young ruler's heart and was able to cut through all the layers that other people couldn't necessarily see. And he saw that his heart clung to his wealth. It was clinging to that as a form of a savior. And he was trying to get him to sever that tie. Well, what I want you to see in verse 25 is... Jesus is doing the same thing with this lawyer. Okay? He's doing the same thing with this professor. Except what is idolatrous in his heart is different than what's idolatrous in the rich young ruler's heart. Right? That's what we're going to see unpacked here. And so then we begin. Look at verse 24. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So how does Jesus answer this question? With a with a question. <laughs> question for a question. Right? Uh, this is not a smart alecky thing that kids and parents sometimes do with each other. You need to go clean up your plate. Why should I clean up my plate? You made the mess originally, right? No, it's not that kind of a dialogue, right? It is more of a dialogue uh, where Jesus is positioning this guy to be able to see what he sees. Ultimately, where Jesus is going to get him is to a point where he sees he needs to be more dependent on the Lord and a little less self-righteous and self-pious than he is. All right, That's where he's getting him. And then here's the answer. Verse 27. This lawyer is going to quote to Jesus, guess what? Anybody want to guess? Scripture, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Where's that from? He's kind of paraphrasing here, but he's, he's summarizing the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, isn't he? So he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. They would have read this multiple times in a day in, in Jerusalem there. This was, a, this was a passage every lawyer would have known from the heart. They would have been able to just rattle it off. So you could just point to any particular lawyer. What is the Shema? And they could stand up and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right? And then they would just rattle it off just like nothing. Okay? So he is quoting to them the Shema. But then he attaches something that's not in the Shema, right? He says here at the latter part, and with all, and right here, and with, and your what? Neighbor, here's, this is a key, key word, neighbor as what? 
yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19 here. He's attaching these two things. It also doubles as a nice summation of, guess what? The Ten Commandments, right? The first part deals with all of our commands with the Lord. The second part, from like four or five down, deal with our relationship with other people. All right? So it's the Shema. It's Leviticus 19. It's the Ten Commandments summarized into one concise, neat statement. Right? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What's Jesus? Now, wait, before we t- flip the next one, what do you expect Jesus to say? Right? When I was reading this the first time, here's what I was expecting. I was expecting like Martin Luther, the reformer, to come in and say, the just shall live by faith. That is incorrect. Right? <laughs> That's what I was expecting. But what does Jesus say? Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered what, church? Correctly. Do this and you will live. Oh, but there's a catch. Right? What's the catch? (laughs) He's going to. Let's see the next verse here. But he, read this with me, desiring to justify himself. What's that mean? He's, yeah, he's already picked up on it. He's not doing that. He is not doing what he just recited in the summation of the Shema and in the summation of Leviticus 19 and the Ten Commandments. He's not doing it. Okay? He's trying to find a way out. He's trying to justify why he doesn't do it. Okay? So he's trying to justify himself. Not that anyone in this room ever tries to justify themselves for their sins. I'm not saying that. And he says, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Mm hmm. Seems slick, doesn't it? What's Jesus' answer? Verse 30. And Jesus replied, and here we go with the parable. So let's just unpack this parable and we'll get an answer for his question of who is my neighbor. A man was going down from Jericho, Jerusalem. He fell among robbers. I've already talked about this. They shrieked him, they beat him half to death and leave him for dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest, oh, a son of Aaron, someone who has interceded for the people on behalf of the people for God, someone who is all about ministry, someone who is like this lawyer, someone who knows the word front and back, who knows the Deuteronomy says, knows the Shema, knows the first five books of the, of the, of the Bible, knows the Holy Scriptures. He's coming down the road. And when he sees them, what's he do, church? Passes the other side. Doesn't want anything to do. I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I'm about the Lord's business. Too busy to help somebody dying on the side of the road. Well, let's, let's remember too, don't you think, uh, have you ever heard these stories about people who break down and they're trying to flag down help, but they're really not broke down, they just have a tire off their wheel, there's a bunch of people off on the side in the bushes and they're going to jump you and you stop and help? Have you ever heard stories like that before? He might have been thinking, this is a danger to me. Whoever did this may not be far away. They may actually have him out for bait. I think snipers even do this at wartime. They'll wound one soldier, leave him out on the battlefield, so that other soldiers will come out and try to bring aid. And when they try to come out and bring aid, guess what that sniper does? One, two, three, four, pulls as many of them as he can, right? So maybe he's thinking about that. He senses danger. He's out. Next one comes. So likewise, a Levite. Okay, okay. Here we go. Now we got a winner, right? Who remembers the Levites? The Levites, remember how they got their special position with God? When Moses was up on the mountain receiving from God the commandments, God is speaking with him and he's receiving these commandments. 
comes down, he finds everybody engaged in idol worship, and Aaron comes up with that fabulous line where he says, Lord, I just threw the gold in there, and out popped this golden calf, and we all just started worshiping. That's how it all went down, right? And Moses says, all you who are faithful to God, come to me and strap your swords on your sides. Go through the camp and kill all that are engaged in idol worship. And so the Levites do as Moses has said. They strap the swords to their side. And just to make this very clear, we're talking about in-laws and cousins and aunts and uncles that are engaged in idol worship. They cut them down and kill them for the idol worship that they're doing. And because of their faithfulness in that moment when Moses called them, they received this special position to be those who go in and make offerings for the Lord. To go in and have the Levitical priesthood is established because of their faithfulness in that moment. And also because it's God's will, right? So likewise, a Levite, someone who would have known the law, someone who has gone in and provided, uh, you know, atonement, sacrifices for God's people, who knows what the Word says, who knows Deuteronomy, who knows Leviticus, who knows the Shema and the Ten Commandments. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. So he apparently thinks it's too dangerous as well to help. Then the next one, third person here, but a Samaritan. Now, this doesn't hit 21st century Americans as scandalously as it should be, as it would have for this lawyer and the other Jews in the area. Let's rewind the tape so we understand why this would have been jarring and scandalous for there to be a Samaritan in this story. Who were the Samaritans? Well, it's a long story that goes back hundreds of years, perhaps thousands of years, but I'll summarize it here quickly for you. There was a split in kingdoms. Northern kingdom didn't do as well worshiping God, but some remained true there. Southern kingdom, Judah, stayed a little truer, but always didn't do real well either. Uh, Northern kingdom set up their own site for worship, a sort of other Jerusalem. Uh, And whenever the Babylonians came in and wrecked everything, they took who they could back with them. Those who were left intermingled and married against the word of God with the pagans that surrounded them. And they bore out children who were kind of mixed. They were sort of half Jews, half pagans. Okay? Um, whenever they came back from Babylon and began the work in Ezra, they, the Samaritans that were close by offered to help build the temple. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We got it. We're good. Let me make this very clear. The Jews would go way out of their way to avoid any interaction with the Samaritan. In fact, there was a quick route through Samaria to get to Jerusalem from certain parts of Israel. And people would go miles around to avoid having to be in the area of Samaria. That's why the the Acts 1-8 challenge is a big deal. Go therefore into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Let me make this very, very clear. Did Jews eat pork, right? No, they don't, right? I would say most lawyers, most people of this professor's status, would probably let, rather share a slop bucket with a pig than sit down and eat a meal with a Samaritan. Okay? That is what makes this jarring. So he is pointing to somebody who is absolutely different in every conceivable way, theologically, uh, in ethnicity. You know, I, I'm going to say something here. The gospel needs to be communicated that it is more... It crosses ethnic lines. And if there's ever been a day uh, where ethnicity and the gospel trumping that, it is today, right? I'm going to share an observation I have. The only people who ever get mad at me and and say things to me about being pro-life and how it subverts the gospel are people who are okay with abortion and with that kind of a culture. And some people maybe get mad, have gotten mad at me before. 
And they've said, you, you, sometimes you bring up racial equality and how the gospel trumps it. You bring that up too much. When I hear that, sometimes I fear that I'm hearing the voice of that lawyer. You know, that's what I'm hearing. All right. Jesus died for all, right? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and what's it say? He had what? Compassion. Verse 34. He went to him, bound his wounds. Let's just park here for just a second and think about this. Remember what I said just a minute ago? This could be a trap. This Samaritan taking time to give this man medical aid is rendering himself in danger. Robbers could jump out at any time or they could travel down the road and find him and beat him and kill him and take everything he has just like the fellow he's trying to help. He is putting himself in danger by trying to help this person. Furthermore, look at this. <clears throat> Binds him up with his wounds. Where does he get the bandages? Have you ever asked that? Where's, where's the Samaritan getting bandages here? There's only one place he's going to have them on him while taking a trip. That's going to be he's going to cut him off his own garment. He's, he's basically ripping the sleeves off of his shirt to bind and tend the wounds here of a man he doesn't even know. Pouring on oil and wine. This is the best they could render for, first, for aid in the first century. Right? He's doing everything he can, conceivably, to try to save this man's life and keep him from dying. Set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. Right? So then he, he, he even goes to the inn. He's paying the guy's bill to be there. He's by his bedside. He's helping him. Verse 35. And the next day... He took out two denarii. Denarii is roughly about a day's wage, roughly. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you. What is happening here? What is this man doing? Well, this man is helping somebody when it's dangerous, and he's helping somebody when it's inconvenient. We would love to always help people when it's convenient for us, when it doesn't cost us anything, and whenever it's not very dangerous for us to do so, when we don't have anything to lose. You know, there's a principle that begins to emerge here, right? A couple principles. One principle is this. And I'm, I'm going to be very honest. Sometimes I struggle with this myself. But this is, this is here in the scripture. I can't deny it. We're called to have compassion and help people who are not like us. That don't think like us. That don't talk like us. They don't look like us, don't smell like us, probably don't even have the same skin pigment as we do. And we're called to be compassionate to all. Right? That's a principle that's emerging. We all like to help people that are like us, right? We all like that. That's easy, comfortable, and fine. This guy is doing something completely different, right? And he's willing to pay whatever is necessary to take care of this man. Verse 36. And then Jesus lands the plane. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among these robbers? So again, Jesus answers a question with a question, right? And what's the lawyer said? The lawyer's actually going to do a good job. Look at verse 37 here. I want you to notice one thing here. And this goes back to the animosity that I was talking about with these, these lawyers, these professors, and Samaritans. Notice in his answer here, he won't even say the Samaritan. Do you see that? What's he say? He won't even say it. The one who. <laughs> he, 
He didn't say the Samaritan who. He just says the one. He can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan who was the true neighbor. What's the difference here, right? The one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan shows him mercy in a way that the Levite and the son of Aaron, the priest, would never dare to do. Here's the difference, right? To the lawyer, the word neighbor is a noun. Someone, something someone else is. Something someone else is. But to Jesus, what he's trying to get him to see through this parable is this. Neighbor is a verb. It is something that I do. Do you see the difference there? <laughs> the lawyer is looking for the lawyer is looking for minimal obedience and maximum reward in the kingdom. Do you see that? Who's really my neighbor so that I may have eternal life? Right? Can't I just address the Levites and the and the priests and be good to them on the road? Surely not Samaritans as well, right? So what is this? This is an illustration here of loving others. This is what Jesus is giving us. This is what it looks like to love others. One thing I'm going to say about this, and I'm going to move on. You know, what you have in this verse here, and it said, love others like yourself. This is not a theology of self-love. I've heard a lot of Christians try to say, well, you know, before you can love others, you really got to love yourself. That's baloney. <laughs> I don't know why there's still these questions that are asked on uh, Facebook and places like that. I'm assuming people in here use Facebook since I got no takers on TikTok earlier. <laughs> and they'll, they'll post, why do people get divorced? My answer is the same. After many hours of counseling with couples, I'll tell you why. You ready? It's not hard. It's just selfishness. That's what it all these boils down to. It's just selfishness, right? Somebody in the relationship or both parties in the relationship were selfish. And they were so selfish that it ended and destroyed the relationship and the covenant that was there. In a similar fashion here, I rarely have to tell people, stop loving yourself so much. People are inclined to two things. They are inclined to love themselves and to be kind to themselves and to seek pleasure for themselves. You don't have to be taught how to do that. You're naturally bent that way when you come out of the womb, right? That's why Jesus is saying this. How would you treat yourself? How kind would you be to yourself in this situation? Be that same level of kind to others, right? That's an illustration of loving self. All right, second part here. Is there ever a time when loving others, because loving others is at the heart of what Jesus has called us to do. Is there ever a time when that command to serve others is superseded? Luke beautifully, masterfully weaves us a time that it is superseded. Let's look at this next section. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet. Now let me pause here. I said I was going to talk about this. Let me unpack this real quick just so you understand what's happening here. It was not common for women to sit at the feet of Jesus, or excuse me, to sit at the feet of rabbis and learn. This is the kind of language that Paul would have used for his professors that instructed him. I sat at the feet of fill in the blank of the rabbi. There is a dignity here given to women in Christianity that is not afforded to them in all faiths. I know that doesn't hit you right this morning because in this culture, we're very feministic in North America. It's not this way in other cultures and other religions. 
If I brought in here 6 million Muslim women and read this passage, verse 39, you could just about push them over with a feather because they would be taken back by this idea that women could sit at the feet of Jesus and could glean and listen that the dignity that is there, right? And she had a sister called Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, right? Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, like you can almost hear the, the aggravation, <laughs> right? She, who is she mad at in this? She's mad at her sister for not helping. All these people show up, all these disciples, maybe some of those women we talked about earlier that were traveling with them. All of them show up. I got to cook this meal. I got to serve this meal. I got to clean these dishes. And all y'all are going to do is sit in here and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. That's real nice for you, right? Not that anybody in here has ever done that before. But maybe you can feel that. There's some sibling tension that is there, right? Sibling tension. Uh, do you not care that my sister has left me? So she's not only mad at Mary, she's mad at Jesus, right? right? She's mad at everybody for not being in there and helping and not seeing to that she gets help. Tell her to help me. Like, so we went from somebody who was so fixated on Scripture that they wouldn't serve others to now we got somebody so fixated on serving that they won't sit at the feet of Jesus. Look at the answer. But the Lord answered her, and, and I love this, this address. This, the way he addresses her signifies intimacy. There's a relationship here. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Lots of things going through her head. She feels the pressure and weight of a lot of things. What's the difference here between Martha and Mary? The difference is this. Martha is fixated on lots of things, but Mary's just fixated on one thing, isn't she? She's fixated on Christ. How does this tie in? How does this go together? Well, I think it goes together this way. Service and mission are supplanted by worship. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Stay with me. John Piper once said, missions exist because worship does not. Let me see if I can bring this home to you just a little bit. Do you know there will be a day when the last pastor on this planet will preach his last sermon and there will be no more calls for the gospel? It'll be over. It'll be done. There will be a day when the last missionary lays his head down or her head down on a pillow and they go to sleep in Jesus and they wake up in glory and there will be no more missionaries sent out. It'll be over. There will be a day when the last sinner will stop justifying themselves like this lawyer did and will bend the knee in submission to who Jesus is and ask for forgiveness and come to him, but then that will be the last one. There will be no more. The work of the evangelist, the work of the pastor, the work of the missionary will cease. Well, what will we do in heaven? We will worship. We will worship forever and for eternity, right? We will worship. Here's the, here's the reality of this. My life should be showing mercy and kindness to others, but it should never be at the expense of worshiping at Jesus' feet. Do you see that this morning? There is a podcast I've been listening to. I think I've mentioned it before. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I find it fascinating. The guy that's talking in it's talking about how he got burned out in ministry from doing, 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 and not worshiping. And what I've found is this, two observations about ministry, and I can say this because I've been on staff at churches for near 20 years now. 
There's always something else to do in ministry. Always. There's always another call to make. There's always another sermon to write. There's always another visit to make. There's always another gospel message to share. There's always another door to knock on. There's always another family to go see. It never stops. When I die and you put me in the ground as your pastor, you'll throw dirt on my casket. You'll come back here and you'll either say, he was a great pastor or he was a terrible pastor. Eat potato salad and say, who's the next guy now? Right? Like it's just the way the ministry work goes on. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Well, you can lose your ministry. I I think about this often. Did you know I'm only one bad decision away from not being the pastor of this church anymore? Have you ever thought about that? You can lose your ministry. But you can never lose your worship. You never can. doesn't matter what you do. You can sit at the feet of Jesus no matter what bad decisions you've ever made. Right? You know, I'm a big fan of, I, I left my pen in the other service, but I have a pen that I like to use. And because I write some, people assume I collect pens, and so now I'm a pen collector, even though I never set out to be a pen collector. And uh, there's a particular brand of pens that I have called Tool, T-U-L. Have you ever used those before? I'm a big fan of them. They're my daily users. Um, and I remember one time I was getting ready to preach at a, my home church, I think it was. And they're a little more expensive than the little big pens that everybody passes out and gives for free, right? And it was out of ink. And I couldn't make the notes on my sermon that I wanted to. I had a paper sermon. I couldn't make those notes. And there was a little kid sitting behind me. He was scribbling something. And I said, hey, buddy, can I borrow your pen? He said, sure. He handed me that thing out of his mouth. It was covered in drool. It had bite marks all over it. It was a cheap big pen. It would seen better days. And I took that thing and kind of wiped it off on my pants a little bit and made the notes I needed and then turned around and said, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it and hand it back. And then I, I thought about it. And when I was in seminary, I thought about my, one of my professors talking how he had a pen that cost $600. He's the only person that had ever used it. Can you imagine spending $600 on a hand pen? And as I walked to that pulpit, I thought, you know, a chewed up big pen that's got some toddler slobber all the way down it is more valuable than a $600 pen that's out of ink, isn't it? Here's the reality of what Jesus is saying. He's telling us in this passage here that yes, your life should show mercy. You should have ministry. You should love others. But you should be filled with feasting at the feet of Christ. Nothing should prevent you from being around the preaching and the teaching of the Word. It's critical and crucial to being filled and useful for Him because Even a good Samaritan who is not filled with Christ is lost without him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for the fact that we can live a life where we do all the right things and all the right service projects. And Lord, from the outside, we look look well to the world. But Lord, we know inside we're burnt out, we're tired, we're spent. God, what we need is a refocus here, a call to refocus on worship. Worship in who you are. Worship that you are God. Worship that you have, that is centered on the fact that you have come to us when we were dead in our sins on the road. That you have brought life to us and you have bandaged our wounds and you have tended to us and breathed life into us. Lord, may we never forget that and may we be filled in such a way 
that we can love others in a radical way that those around us can't see if they don't know you, can't figure out unless they know you. We pray and ask these things in the precious name above names, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're now going to sing in response to the gospel preached. If you're here today and you've not had those wounds bound, you, you know you've been dead in your sin, Christ is calling you now. Won't you come to him? I'll be back here at the snack shack to receive you as we sing. Please stand. <laughs>